Ezekiel 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, as it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Bayuzai, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces. And each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of burl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any one of the four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When they went, these went, and when they stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures there was a likeness of an expanse, shining like an awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne, and the appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, 
and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice of the one speaking. Here ends the reading of God's word. Well, good morning. And welcome uh, to you if you're a visitor here this morning. I welcome you on behalf of those sitting around you, gathered together to be built up in the word. And we are here, beloved, to worship the Most High. We are not here to lend ourselves to emotionalism alone, but to glorify our Lord alone. And what we have a picture this morning of is God on his throne. While his people suffer. The title of the message is From Grief to Glory. And it's the Lord transitioning by way of the Holy Spirit as ministering through John the Apostle from chapter 3 into chapter 4 where we, were, where we are removed from a suffering church, a troubled church, a tempted people of God into the throne room of God. So we'll begin by reading God's word, Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So reads the word 
of the living God. In the animated movie entitled Ants, with a Z, the majority of the film follows the life of an, anx- of an anxious, rather, uh, working ant in an underground colony who, who goes on a mission to win the love of a princess ant. Now, there are scenes in that movie that portray a massive underground colony of ant-like armies where we see uh, disagreements between these animated ants in these colonies and in between uh, blades of grass. We see that circumstances of ants life of an ant's life are portrayed as being um, sometimes emotionally overwhelming to downright dangerous. If you're an ant, you could understand that. But what's interesting is that as the movie ends, the camera moves outward from a burrowed hole where this ant colony is, showing this massive army of ants just outside of this colony, and yet the, the camera continues to pull upward and outward to where you see a crumpled soda can, some garbage laying in the dirt. The ants now disappear, and you uh, come by, by way of this camera, a light lamp, a light post. You see grass, and you realize that now you're in a park, And as it pulls back even further, you see the Manhattan skyline realizing this is Central Park in the midst of New York City. So as a result, you're provoked to think about the intense drama of these tiny animated ants amidst a much larger backdrop where superior beings dwell. New York City. As we move from chapter 3 of the book of Revelation into chapter 4, we transition from earthly grief, trouble, and temptation of the seven churches of Asia Minor to the heavenly throne room of Almighty God. John's vision, Vern Poitras writes, is, quote, a little like a visit to an airport control tower. At a busy airport, a casual observer looking out the window sees planes, vehicles, and baggage going every which way. But if the observer is escorted up to the control tower, he can see the overall plan of the airport and hear the directives going out to execute the plans of the controllers. Suddenly, the goings-on down below makes sense. So it is with John. Through this vision, we are transformed to the control tower for the entire universe, end quote. So from this vantage point, beloved, we understand the controller. We understand his plans. Things fall into place. His plans cannot and will not fail. He is sovereign God. Now, it's important to note, Revelation chapter 4 is to Revelation chapter 5 what a setting is to a great drama. Revelation 4 is the setting to Revelation 5. Very important. Chapter 4 establishes the setting, whereas chapter 5 works out the drama situated within that setting, and that setting is a heavenly setting. Now, keep that in your mind. Hang that in your mind where we're at. 
just transition from Asia Minor into the throne room of God. Because I have to digress for a moment for the sake of review. A few reminders in how, beloved, we are to interpret the book of Revelation. Revelation is the apocalypse. Meaning the unveiling of. It means to reveal. It means to tear back the veil. It's not a hiding. It's a revealing. Revelation is made up of seven sections that examine the entire period of time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ depicted in seven snapshots. It's known as recapitulation. To recap or to sum up once again. That's the basis, that's the thesis of the book of Revelation, covering the last days. The last days, beloved, are from the time of Christ's coming to the time of his return. John said in 1 John, this is what? The last day. It was the last day then, it's the last day now. Now, we just spent 13 weeks in section one. Section one is made up of chapters 1 through 3. We looked at the prologue to the letter, the introduction to the letter, and then seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. That's section 1. We now move into section 2, chapters 4 through 7, where we see the vision of the heavenly throne room, the opening of the seven seals, and the sealing of the 144,000. And then sections 3 through 7 are divided up between chapters 8 and chapter 22. Now, these sections, beloved, are not chronological. These sections, as you go through the book of Revelation, are not chronological, but they overlap and they provide for us a great panorama. It is a vision. Many pictures. The book of Revelation, as you know, has been cause for much creative interpretation over the years that have risen from fictional progression rather than hermeneutical consistency. Meaning, a right and proper interpretation, especially of the Old Testament, especially over the past 170 years. Now, we have attempted, by way of a two-week introduction, to bring some sobriety to the interpretation of this glorious book. If you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go to our website and look at Introduction to Revelation Week 1 and Introduction to Revelation Week 2. Covered a lot of ground. Also, as a reminder... There are some formal characteristics of the book of Revelation that we must not forget as we make our way through this book. Number one, Revelation is an epistle. It is a letter written to first century Christians. Therefore, beloved, it is for us to be understood as it was to the original recipients of this letter. It's been said, quote, any interpretation of this book that necessitates a 21st century perspective is almost certainly wrong, end quote. Case in point, this book cannot mean to us what it never meant to the original readers. Secondly, the book of Revelation is prophetic, steeped, in Old Testament language. It doesn't quote the Old Testament, but what it does is it causes you to think of the Old Testament every few verses, if not almost every verse. 
We're provided regular allusions that take us back to Old Testament territory, not USA Today. Not the New York Times, not CNN, but to the Old Testament. Thirdly, Revelation belongs to a form of literature that was very common to Jewish or within Jewish and Christian circles from 200 BC to 200 AD. A genre of literature known as apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature. That's really the key to this. It seems awkward to us because it's not written anymore. So we really have to do our homework. So it takes place here in the context of highly imaginative language. It's extremely symbolic. Wherever possible in the book of Revelation, we must interpret it symbolically. Wherever possible. This is not a chronological riddle to be pieced together chapter by chapter over 2,000 years. That is not the way we interpret it. That is to say, Revelation, beloved, is a picture book, not a puzzle book. James Stuart Russell said that Revelation is not like a telescope, but like a kaleidoscope. Picture upon picture, vision upon vision, that takes us back to the Old Testament. We just read and opened up with Ezekiel 1. That should be a huge flag. (laughs) So here now, beloved, we enter into section two of these seven sections where we see the lamb that was slain, risen, ascended to the throne room of heaven where he rules and reigns. How are we to understand, beloved, as fallen creatures, how are we to possibly understand the throne room of God? How are we, as finite people, to comprehend the cosmic war behind the veil that separates the physical from the spiritual? Well, it has to be explained to us by way of metaphor. It is like this. It is like that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you remember Paul was taken up into the third heaven to the very abode of God, and he sees things, the scripture says, that are not lawful to be uttered, neither is he allowed to, nor could he describe for us that which he had been given the ability to see supernaturally. How then is it possible to describe the things that people will never see? We're not going to have a vision like this, guaranteed. I mean, this side is heaven. How, how, How do we understand it. Well, quite simply, we are reduced to metaphors and similes. And the Lord has granted us in his grace this kind of literature for the sake of understanding, but we must do our homework to understand this kind of literature. So John here has been given the opportunity to look behind the veil, to peer into the, peer into the very throne room of God, recording for us all this glorious imagery It's almost identical to that which Ezekiel saw. If you remember, he was in exile in the river of Kibar, which Mark read from this morning, Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, what I want you to see this morning is the vision of this throne room. And your, your, your outline here is very extensive, but I want you to follow me through this thing, and it will make sense as we move our way along. Notice first, the vision given to John, the throne room of God. Verse 1. After this I looked, 
And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, the words after this, they refer to that inaugural vision that John received back in chapter one of Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, high and lifted up, which was followed by the Lord's examination of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, Jesus Christ in his glory, and those that are the condition of the seven churches in Asia Minor, and those that are to take place after this. And those things that are to take place after this are the things of chapter 4 to chapter 22. So, the focus of attention here shifts to the future of the seven churches and the forces that assault them as an encouragement to all of God's people throughout redemptive history that live this side of the cross. Notice the voice, it's like a trumpet. This voice is the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. That's made clear for us back in chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. He's the voice like a trumpet. And when Jesus says, I will show you what must take place after this, he is not referring to a chronology of order here. He's not saying, look, the next event to take place after these in sequential order is such and such an event followed by such and such an event. What he's saying is, I am introducing to you a new vision. And we see this throughout the book. The words after this. We see it again in chapter 7, verse 1, new vision. Chapter 7, verse 9, new vision. And so on throughout. He's setting the stage simply for another vision, not a chronology of events. Now, some have taken the words after this, chapter 4, verse 1, to mean that John is going to be taken up to heaven as a type of the church which will be secretly raptured from the earth. Now, in order to arrive at that conclusion, you have to force or insert that view into the text. It's not there. They argue that John all of a sudden functions as a type of you and me, of the whole church, rather than just John himself being granted this vision. Now, I've wondered, as I was taught this as a young Christian, I wondered, you know, why this passage serves as a better type of a secret rapture than, say, chapter 1, verse 10, when John first hears the trumpet. Or in chapter 6, verse 1, when he says, come. Or chapter 7, verse 1, when he says, come. Or chapter 21, when he says, come. But those verses aren't viewed as raptures because they occur in the wrong place to support or typify their presuppositional view of a pre-tribulational rapture where the Lord comes and secretly raptures them away, goes away with the church, and is going to come back later. Oh, the church is going to be raptured, all right, but when he raptures the church, he's going to keep on coming for final judgment. Remember this. The concern of this letter is with what will soon take place and that which is what? At hand. Very important. Therefore, any interpretation that propels the, the entire fulfillment of these prophecies to the last seven years of, of human history with Christians secretly disappearing here in chapter 4 misses the point of the book of Revelation altogether. 
And how on earth can you obey these things that are written if you're gone? Can I get an amen? Amen. Now, I must say this, that most of those who interpret chapter 4, verse 1 as a secret rapture, most of them do admit that the text does not actually prove their position. So I will give them that. Such a view was developed in the 1800s. Now, in a few weeks, I'm going to give the history of this view, where it came from, and most of you will be shocked. But it became so strongly embraced by American evangelicals during the 20th century that most Christians, that's all they know. In apocalyptic literature, the seer is constantly being taken up into heaven by some transcendent type of experience in order to see something granted to him alone for the glory of God and the good of his people. So here John is describing himself as being caught up in order to be given this vision. And it should not be taken as anything more than that. So in response, notice verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So John here, not unlike Paul, realizes that he's been taken up. You know, like Paul said, whether in the body, out of the body, I do not know. All I know is this is what I saw. I don't think John knows whether he was in the body or out of the body, but one thing he he knows is what he saw. Being in some kind of transcendent state here, he begins to describe to the best of his ability that which he sees. So here now, beloved, we begin to see the setting that sets the stage for the drama of chapter five. Are you with me? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Notice the the, the setting here. The setting, and here's the main point. The setting describes the centrality and the indescribable majesty of Almighty God. That is the main point that I want you to walk away from this morning. Walk away with, not from. A throne stood in heaven and one seated on that throne. And notice we move from the vision of his throne to the indescribable majesty of that throne. Verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. To his church, beloved, that is either experiencing great tribulation, they're experiencing suffering, persecution, or they will soon be suffering persecution. To his church, which is being tempted to forsake the faith, He gives them insight into this vision. Seven churches, Asia Minor. Let's not forget the context. They're given this vision. They're given this hope. And John sees now the throne above all thrones. So imagine the encouragement to these suffering people. That above all the thrones of the nations where persecution and mockery seem to prevail, there's one who is the king of all kings whose throne ascends all other thrones. And there he sits in glory, in absolute sovereign control. No surprises for the Lord of glory on his throne, beloved. This is not open theism. God is not learning. 
He's ordained it all. It will all come to pass. And there he sits, ruling and reigning above it all. This should be an encouragement to a church who is soon to be thrown into prison, for which he says, be faithful unto death. Remember that? This should be the fire set under the seat of a church that he says, repent, or I will come and remove your lampstand. Because this is where I rule, and if you're in me, you will share this place with me. Notice, John goes on to describe this, having the appearance of jasper. This is either an opal or a diamond kind of stone. Carnelian was a scarlet uh, red kind of gem, also known as a sardius because they mined them from sardis. You have this emerald stone, which was green. And notice this word rendered rainbow. It's from where we get the girl's name, Iris. You know anybody named Iris today? My grandma had friends named Iris. We need more Irises. So the rainbow here can either be seen vertically upward like a rainbow that we see on a cloudy, rainy, slash sunshiny day, or horizontally, which is the basis for the medieval picture of a halo. Horizontal rainbow. So the picture here is an overhead rainbow-like majestic glow of the throne of the Almighty. And the overall impression here is that of fiery, spectacular beauty of God's character, of his holiness, that is beyond words, that are beyond description. Now, it's, it's not hard to discern the difficulty with, with, with which John tries to uh, describe what he's seeing here. I was listening to a man try to describe his visit to the Tower of London when he uh, passed through all these glorious glass um, cases of uh, beautiful emeralds and, and jewels from the glory days of the British Empire. But as he was doing his best to describe it, which he couldn't, I was reminded of my visit along with my family five years ago to the Tower of London where I saw and witnessed the very same thing. And what's amazing is in these glass cases, the way they shoot out these little spotlights to shine on these priceless and irreplaceable gems. It's amazing. So I couldn't begin to provide an exact description of the refracted or double refracted light that goes in through and all over the place with these glorious, brilliant stones in these beautiful glass cases. It's really indescribable. So I couldn't even really begin to draw a picture for you to describe those things. It is something you must see for yourself. As we read the glorious description of this setting, what you're not able to do is take the indescribable glory and majesty that surrounds the throne of God and formulate a picture or some figure with regard to the majestic glory of Almighty God. John offers nothing that could be turned into a forbidden image. Remember what God said to the children of Israel before they entered into the promised land in Deuteronomy 4. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully 
Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptibly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. God forbids any created thing formed by human hands to image him. Remember the brass pole with the brass serpent that Moses was instructed to lift up because God sent fiery poisonous serpents to bite the Israelites and kill them as judgment? Then he provides a remedy. Look to the bronze serpent on the pole and you shall be saved, which points us forward to what? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what these fools did are what most fools do. They began to worship the pole. Because of God's wielded power through it, eventually they made sacrifices to it, and it became an idol. So Hezekiah shows up in 2 Kings 18, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and it was called Nehushtan. It's the Hebrew word that sounds like bronze and serpent. Turn it to dust. There'll be no image that you'll worship even when it's pointed towards me (laughs) because I'm indescribable. All I'm showing you here is what surrounds my throne. So this indescribable heavenly scene is reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter 1 from which Mark read this morning. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, there's only one place to go and it's on your face. Down. There's the vision of the throne. There's the indescribable majesty of the throne. Notice now the surrounding company, the outward surrounding company of the throne. Verse four. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. So this scene reveals the majestic beauty by brilliantly heavenly adorned creatures, beings. Now, there's a lot of debate as to who these elders are and what these elders represent. The Greek word for elder here is presbuteros, from where you get the word Presbyterian. Therefore, some cute Baptists claim that there will only be 24 Presbyterians in heaven. And most Presbyterians I know have a very good handle on theology and they love the Lord and that is not correct interpretation, as you know. It's a foolish interpretation. Subinterpret this as Christians in glory. It's the church as a whole, represented by 12 of the Old Testament, 12 tribes, 12 from the New, representing the 12 apostles, which as a whole represents the true church of God throughout redemptive history. Now, they base this on a variance reading of chapter 5, which we'll look at next time. But notice, if you have a King James or a New King James Version Bible, this is how it will read. 
They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its scrolls for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed us for God from every tribe, tongue and language and people and nation and you have made us a kingdom and priest to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So one position is that the 24 elders picture the entire host of the redeemed. If you have an ESV, it renders it as following. As follows. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is a compelling view. And I take it the way the ESV renders it, and most Greek manuscripts, by the way, have it that way. So these elders then, if you read this, they speak of the church to God's redeemed people in the third person, indicating that this group of 24 is distinct from God's redeemed people. Are you with me? In chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, we see that one of the elders performs the role of an informant, interpreting heavenly vision, which, by the way, is typical of angels in apocalyptic literature. Okay? Angels show up big in apocalyptic literature. I have uh, intertestamental writings, most of which are apocalyptic, and you, you, man, you can really understand the book of Revelation if you go read some of the, you know, that genre of literature. So we understand these 24 to be a high order of angels. And most, or I should say many uh, conservative scholars believe them to be a high order of angels. So that is to interpret these 24 elders as God's heavenly executives, his senior ministers, if you will. A heavenly cabinet adorned in heavenly array. Crowned with crowns of gold. Now, later on, we see that they're the ones that offer the prayers of the saints to God. They, the 24. It's not the saints who offer up prayers of the saints. It's the 24 elders who offer up uh, praise um, of the saints. Chapter 5, verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 3. When we get to chapter 4, verse 3, we see that the redeemed sing a song that angels can't sing. So a sound interpretation of these elders is a high angelic force, a heaven, the heavenly cabinet members of the Almighty. That's the way we see it. That's the way I'll teach it. Notice now, this outer surrounding company around his throne, we see also sights and sounds of his throne. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, the greatest demonstration of power that we know personally, which really is a sense of helplessness that we experience as human beings, is when nature shows no constraints. Amen? Southern Californians, have you ever been through an earthquake? you realize you're not in control, amen? You have no control. You run for safety. And I'm not talking about a tremor. 
talking about a real earthquake. You're not in control. You know it. You ever been through a hurricane? You're not in control. You know it. You've ever experienced thunder and lightning? Not like we get. This is child's play. I'm talking about the Midwest. When I was a kid, that's where I was. And when there was a flash of lightning, we would count 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. When you heard the rumbling, you knew it was either one, two, or three miles away, depending upon how many seconds you count. Pretty darn close, by the way. When you see a flash of lightning and a crack of thunder at the same time, that's when you go in the house. (laughs) Because it is on you. I mean, that's when trees fall down, split in half. I witnessed it in front of our house as a child. It was amazing, frightening. You understand why the dog's under the couch. <laughs> how, do you, how do you possibly approach such power, such danger? You think of the Old Testament theophanies, Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp said, what? Woohoo! here's God, let's party. No, they trembled. They trembled. Hebrews 12, 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, this is Moses, I tremble with fear, which means to be frightened out of your wits. God cannot, beloved, and will not be domesticated. American evangelicalism. Oh, Jesus, just, you know, he's our friend. So many preachers, so many Christians attempt to emasculate him from his terrifying presence. You know, we live in a day when so many Christians see worship as a personal preference for style. Perhaps you've invited someone to Pacific Hope. And they, they, they go, well, what kind of worship do you have there? Will it make me feel good? <laughs> See, they, they proudly begin to promote their preference for taste as a condition for membership. That is so immature, that is so childish, and that is someone who does not understand the glory and the grandeur and the power of God. Amen. Always singing about the blood. Always singing about the cross. That's right. Well, I want to sing about butterflies. You know, floating through the garden and then I want to be like one. Go somewhere else. Humble yourself. They foolishly assume that if it's good for me and it makes me feel good, it'll be good for God. Wrong. They're constantly seeking to satisfy their taste. Unfortunately, what they either arrogantly or ignorantly ignore is that worship is for God. And therefore, we better seek out what satisfies his taste. He's the consuming fire. 
who's worshipped and adored by heavenly hosts arrayed in white with crowns on their head. And notice, in between this holy, fiery, consuming presence is the fullness of the Spirit of God. Seven torches, which are the seven spirits of God. This is the seven-fold Spirit of God that was, that was prophesied to be upon um, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11. So the effect is to reveal God as being distant from us by way of mediation. The only reason John was able to step up into the presence of the throne of God was because Jesus called him up the mediator between God and man. There's a mediation provided here by holy angels who dish out his judgment, who provides safety upon command. Now, the fact that the Holy Spirit is the down payment for those of us who are in Christ proves that we have yet to reach the new heaven and the new earth, amen? Yes, you are sealed. Yes, we can realize that this is our future. Our citizenship is in heaven. But at the same time, we also realize we haven't received our resurrection bodies. We do not look upon the face of God like this or upon his throne. We've been given a promise. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of the Spirit of God, One Holy Spirit, not seven. Seven is a number that represents fullness or completeness is there between us and the throne. Remember that transitioning verse of the last chapter that we looked at, chapter three, to the church of Laodicea, verse 21? The one who conquers... The one who is no longer lukewarm but is either hot or cold, those who conquer, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We move from that hope to the throne room where there's peals of thunder, lightning, rumblings. You don't kick back with that in mind and go, oh, yeah. That's Jesus. But notice also, in contrast to the peals of thunder and lightning and rumblings, is notice next the serenity of his throne. God is so paradoxical, isn't he? So, amidst all of the fearful elements there, we see serenity. And, verse 6, before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, if we were to put light on a plate of first century glass, it wouldn't shine through as it does with our glass today because they didn't make glass like we do today. They hadn't refined the process, but it would reflect off like crystal. It would bounce all over the place. So not only would this these lightnings and glory and all this be reflecting all over the place. Also, and what's, what's most important that we understand here, I believe, is that John will go on at the end of Revelation to describe the new heaven and new earth where there is no more what? Sea. We see a sea of calmness here. You have to understand that ancient Israelites were not seafaring people. No mighty navies, no great sailors. They feared the sea. 
because the sea to them was an expression of, of a tempest, of a storm, of trouble, of fear. John says in the new heaven and new earth, there is no more sea. Symbolic for no more trouble. No more tempest. Calmness. So all of these pictures, all of these images reveal, reveal for us the distance of this holy God, his incredible display of power, and between us and his throne is mediation. Mediators. Servants. Let alone the Spirit of God. So all of this majesty distances us from God. That's what we want to get out of this chapter. D.A. Carson said this, the danger for us is that we think of God as a being into whose presence we saunter and say, hi, Dad. And then we sing another round of, and he's a great, big, wonderful God, which makes you think of a teddy bear, end quote. This is God who's transcendent, who's glorious, who's distant, who's frightening, one before whom angels dare not to what? Gaze. How is it that you just casually walk into his presence, or as Carson put it, just saunter in? The answer, you don't. And that is the setting, and that is the setup for the next chapter. Because in the drama of the next chapter, what do we see? Redemption. Where you're enabled to walk into the presence of God. But you can't understand redemption until you understand the transcendent glory and majesty and power and fear of God. That's the setting. He's the one who sits above the created order mediated by the Spirit through the Son while surrounded by angelic force, power. But that's not all. Notice the nearby nobles of his throne. Verse 6b. And around the throne, don't miss this, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. See why we open with Ezekiel 1? To shock you, hopefully. To remind us of who he is, what he's like. So all those Old Testament allusions there take us back to either Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, and Isaiah 6. Ezekiel 1 later identifies these powerful beings as cherubim, the highest order of angels. Isaiah 6, we see seraphim, fiery, angelic beings, and they're both in view here in Revelation chapter 4. There's four heads of four living creatures. Now, in, in the ancient Near East, king's thrones or palaces, beloved, often had statute of winged lions or winged bulls that stood as guardians, so to speak, over the presence of the king. Just look at a biblical encyclopedia, you'll see them all over the place. 
in the Bible. Cherubim function as guardians to God's holiness, both literally and figuratively. Remember in Genesis 3, after man fell to sin, God drove them out of the garden. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Figuratively, the Ark of the Covenant, Ezekiel 25, or Exodus 25. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall their faces the cherubim be. Get the picture? Surrounding his throne are living creatures on both sides. The symbol here of an ox the symbol of strength, the strongest of all domesticated animals is the ox. His throne is eternally strong. A lion, the greatest and fiercest of the wild kingdom, king of the beasts. Jesus, king of the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You have the eagle, which is the most majestic of birds, noted, noted for its swiftness. You know, it's interesting. We read Isaiah 40, They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When you read that whole thing in context, you you realize it draws a picture of the mother eagle who, who, when teaching the eaglets how to fly, kicks them out of the nest. Messes up the nest, kicks them out, and then you have the father below. So as they fall and they need assistance, the father sweeps up with open wings and catches the eaglet to bear the little one up. This is a picture of God's protection, his care over his people. And then you have the face of a man, which represents intelligence, believe it or not. (laughs) Because man was given dominion over all the earth. And out of all God's creatures, man is the only one made in the image of God. So this represents intelligence. So here you have the throne of God depicted as being strong, royal, compassionate, and intelligent. And all of this language is drawn from the Old Testament, reflected through the power of God, that is, these living beings. Notice the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, were full of eyes all around and within. They are reflecting here the omniscience of Almighty God, the all-knowingness of the Almighty One. Nothing is hidden from Him. He knows all things. He's the sovereign. So here then are the ones who serve as the innermost circle to the throne of Almighty God. Arguably the most elite angelic forces in heaven. The most noble, the most powerful, most intelligent, most expeditious. Can you draw an image of this? Can you begin to draw a picture of this? Nothing, no drawing, no artist could do justice to this description, and that's the point. How do you come up with this? You don't take these mixed metaphors of apocalyptic literature and try to draw some creature. This isn't like taking a lion and a tiger and making a liger. 
(laughs) Much more complicated. So the point here, beloved, is to understand the symbol-laden power that each figure draws our attention to to make up the whole, the whole great picture that's being drawn for us to the power and the majesty of God. So this is not a photographic representation from heaven to expose what heaven looks like or what these creatures look like verbatim. This is apocalyptic imagery that reveals for us not what heaven looks like, but what heaven is like. Big difference. Remember Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 14? Speaking of Jesus, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a fire. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. That is a picture not to show us what Jesus looks like, but again, beloved, what he is like. That's what he is like. Not a snapshot of exactness. These are God's angelic ministers. They, th- they serve throughout Revelation, both worshiping God and distributing judgment. In, a, in Revelation 15, 7, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath. God's wrath. They serve at God's command. They're mighty. They're powerful. But yet as mighty and as powerful as they are, beloved, they hide their face from God. This takes us back to Isaiah 6. Remember the scene? Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then God goes on to commission Isaiah to preach to a people who won't hear. Keep on preaching because they won't hear. As a matter of fact, make the the ears of the people dull. The more you preach, the harder they'll be. And if you go to John chapter 12, verse 36 to 41, which you can do later, you'll see that that which Isaiah saw sitting on the throne in glory with these angels humbled, it's a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ on the throne. John chapter 12. Notice now the eternal worship around the throne of the Almighty. Verse 8, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is eternal, amen is right. God is eternal, therefore worship in heaven is eternal. Day and night employs human terminology here, expressing the concept of eternity. There is no day, there is no night in heaven, but this helps us finite human beings understand day and night, day and night, day and night, that's forever. Notice this song declares his purity, holy, 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 his separateness. His intrinsic power, Lord God Almighty, and his eternality, who was and is and is to come. Now, when it says here they never cease to say holy, 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 that doesn't mean that these angelic beings are are singing nonstop. Remember that there's a difference between doing something continually or repetitiously and continuously without pause. 
This is habitual worship. Not ongoing, never taking a break type of thing. But notice verse 9. And whenever, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. So those angels closest to him, these senior ministers, these uh, heavenly executives give glory, they give honor, they give praise to him forever, day and night, and they actually orchestrate here the praise of heaven while others join in the demonstration. Notice. They lay their crowns before the throne. You and I will do the same thing. They realize here, beloved, they have no self-governing authority. Like in the midst of a storm, you have no self-governing authority. He's in authority. These creatures realize this. And when we look at chapter 4 and chapter 5 together, we see five expressions of praise. And as the vision vision progresses, the choir multiplies. Okay? Now notice. It begins with 4. Chapter 4, verse 8. Four living creatures worship. Chapter 4, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down in worship. In chapter 5, verse 8, you have four living creatures and 24 elders worshiping. And then in chapter 5, verse 11, you have living creatures, elders, many more angels, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. Then in chapter 5, verse 13, every creature in heaven and earth and under earth and in the sea and all that is in them worship. They worship the one who rules over the created order of his throne. He reigns. He is an absolute authority over his unlimited kingdom and all worship him. And these four powerful angelic beings initiate the worship. What's their motivation for worship? That's our next point. It's the last point. Motivation for worship. Is it, because, is it because God saves sinners? Not in this context. Chapter 5 it is, but not here. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you what? Created all things. And by your will they existed and were creator. So, were created. In scripture we see a steady movement between who God is, and what he does. Now, we can only know him by what he does, amen? We can't pull him down and figure him out. We can't figure out who he is without knowing what he's done. Therefore, we praise him for what he's done because of who he is. We come to understand who he is by what he's done. And that's what really good systematic theology does for you. If you get a series of systematic theology, which you should have and get, it moves you from who he is to what he's done. And you and I, as theologians, or any other theologian, and everyone's a theologian, whether they realize it or not, we can only know who he is by what he's done. So because of what he's done, we go back to who he is. And we unfold who he is by what he's done. Amen? Does that make sense? I think it makes sense. So here then we worship. They worship the king whose kingdom was created. And they worship him as creator. These are all created beings here. 
The elders bow down. They acknowledge his, ma- his majesty. They acknowledge his authority. They recognize that they are merely a derivative of the one who deserves all honor and praise. And when they're honored with crowns, they throw them at his feet. Where else do you go but on your face? So this shows for us the transcendent glory and the separateness of God from his creation. That's what we must see in chapter four because you can't understand redemption until you understand that core belief, that truth. There's no way. If you're not saved here this morning by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have to understand this before you can understand the one who went to the cross because the one who went to the cross is the one who spoke all things into existence, including you. Therefore, repent and believe. This is all in response to God as the creator, the ruler and the sovereign king. That's who he is. We will get next time. We will move into chapter five. God the redeemer, that's what he's done. It's the doctrine of creation that establishes the kingship of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, without him, nothing was made that was made. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Nothing was made without him. All things were made for him. All things were made by him, through him and for him. He's the king of glory. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. Remember, revelation is not written to stimulate vain imaginations, carnal curiosity about the last day's events, beloved. This is not some strange code that must be interpreted by a 21st century newspaper. This book was written to comfort an afflicted church. To them first and for us throughout time till he comes back in glory written to reassure a troubled, persecuted, wandering and wandering church of Jesus Christ. That's why we have this book. Jesus does this by, he pulls back the veil to reveal the eternal heavenly throne, his reign, his rule, and the worship that goes on there now. So, is the camera pans out from Laodicea, the last of the seven churches in Asia Minor, minor wor- wor- working its way upward and outward from Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, Smyrna, and Ephesus, and Ephesus, which are disappearing in the distance now. The camera moves up and away into the first heaven where the clouds and the blue sky are, showing that, wow, there's a much greater thing going on here than in Asia Minor. Up into the second heaven, the universe where the planets and the stars are, the universe that he created into the throne room of the one who created it. And he's in control over it all. Everything. He's the one that came to lay his life down, to take it up again. Therefore, we see the songs of the redeemed. Chapter 5. Is our worship at Pacific Hope preoccupied with God 
like this? Or is our singing and our preaching and our speaking for our benefit? Centered on us. Centered on our well-being. Centered on, here, here's one, our sensitivities. No. Not if I can do anything about it, it won't be. I encourage you with this. As a Christian, when you're feeling persecuted, disappointed, discouraged, beat down, tempted to where you feel you can bear it no more, or when you, not unlike me, and this is where I find myself more often than not, full of myself, which is just miserable. Go read chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation to be reminded of who's in control, what he's done, and what awaits you as his redeemed. To sit on the throne with him? A place for you? Your citizenship, which is in heaven? Members of the household of faith? A place prepared for you? By way of the cross, that was the preparation. He went to prepare a place for you. To prepare a place, he had to go to the cross to prepare the place. It's already set. He's not up there with wooden nails like John Frege building something. It's done. Sinclair Ferguson said, when he was a young man, just a teenager, He was struck by Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 to where he reads it every Lord's Day before he goes to church. That will remind us how to worship. That will remind us who we worship. That will remind us what he's done to deserve such great worship. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray, I pray, that we may see you as you really are, your majestic beauty and omnipotent power which is on display through the scriptures that we may be reminded, Lord, when we're full of ourselves, when we're being tempted, when we're being tried, when we're discouraged, when we're disappointed, when we're being persecuted for your name's sake, may we go back and may we remember where you rule and reign and what is going on around the throne. And to the best of our ability by this glorious, picturesque format of the book of Revelation, may we see you and what you are like and what the throne room is like until we can see you face to face in glory. May we run this race with endurance. The race is set before us of fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Bless your people, I pray as we go out singing in remembrance of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.